Jay Leno. I don't need that. Ah, skip it. That was really good. I'm sorry. I need to apologize to Pete already this morning because I was giving a little heart palpitations. You know, sometimes when you're spending time with the Lord, sometimes you get a little different direction sometimes. Sometimes you think you know where you're going and God goes, ah, you think you had a plan? Ah, I got a better plan. And I go, oh, okay. And uh, so I was dealing with the Lord a little bit this morning and realized, oh my goodness, missed breakfast, so no donuts for me. And, uh, and I walked in and Pete, I could just see Pete's temperature going down a little bit. And then I went to get a drink of water. And uh, of course he... Uh, was introducing me. So, sorry about that, Pete. <laughs> Last day, what are you going to do, fire me? All right. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I just need to tell you, this has been just a, so great a weekend. Uh, I have really appreciated getting to know some of you and reconnecting with some of you and, and hearing your stories and making you listen to all my stories. And uh, it's, it's just been great. And so uh, as you're sharing just why this these retreats and this ministry is so important. I, I just want to reiterate that. You know, continue support not only for your own benefit, but support it and encouraging other people to be a part of this. I, I'm really going to try to encourage some of the folks from Colonial to come and be a part of this. And uh, We do do some stuff uh, for, for families and for couples and things like that, but there's never enough, never enough. And then many different ways of experiencing, experiencing time together. Uh, and then you, you look out and it's snowing up here and it's gorgeous and it's just, it's, it's awesome. Uh, growing up, uh, my parents were, were my heroes, absolutely my heroes. Uh, my mother could fix any problem, any problem. Usually it had to do with either methylate or Bactine, <laughs> but she could solve any, any problem or a nap. <laughs> Eighth grade, go to heck and nap. Uh, my, my dad had an answer for everything. Had an answer for everything. So if you had a problem, concern, go talk to dad. Got, got a plan. Moving forward. When I was six years old, we lived in Florida. And, uh, well, I would never live in Florida. I like to go visit Florida, but I would never live in Florida. You know why? There's snakes in Florida. <laughs> Lots of snakes. Apparently, in the Everglades, there's like 100,000 Anacondas. <laughs> Maybe not anacondas, but big snakes. They found an 18 feet, 0.7 foot Python. monster. Python. python, thank you, that's the word. You saw I was struggling, didn't you? <laughs> I don't even like to say the words, python. Uh, I mean, think the guys walk along, checking some water gate in the middle of the, and they'll, there's this 18 foot snake. He did what he should have done, he killed it. Uh, <laughs> We lived in Florida. We lived kind of in a rural area, and uh, we were playing in the backyard one day, and all of a sudden, six years old, all of a sudden, between my mother and I is a coral snake. Some of you might know what a coral snake is. Coral snake's the most poisonous North American snake. It's brightly colored, which is fun for kids, you know. Uh, oh, look at that. Candyland. Uh, and uh, my mother you know, went into her soothing voice. Some of you moms are looking at me right now. Now, Jeff, that's a very pretty snake, but we're not going to touch that snake. Now, she told me about this. I, I don't remember any of this. 
she told me about it. But her telling you the story has traumatized me about snakes ever since. <laughs> I mean, I don't even like look at pictures of snakes. Uh, but she, uh, she was able to calm me down, get my attention, distract me, whatever she did. And then she went and got a rake and took care of it, which made her a, a hero of mine because there's one less snake in the world. Uh, my dad, uh, one night I worked at this little grocery store. It was called the Handy Pantry. It was on... It was on Portland Avenue and 60th, just this little grocery store, neighborhood grocery store. And uh, for whatever reason, 16-year-old, I'm, I'm there at the store by myself. You know, the, the, the owner, manager, you know, that was my shift, and I'm, I'm there working the shift by myself. This guy that I knew was kind of, a, kind, of a, kind of a bad guy that I knew from around the neighborhood. He came in, and luckily there was a number of other customers in the store, and I could see that he was going to try and steal some cigarettes. So my job, 16 years old, is to guard the handy pantry, right? Put those back. And he did. Why? Because there were other customers in the store. And he storms out of the store. I just happened, uh, probably an hour later, maybe just about 30 minutes before I'm going to close up the store by myself, lock the door, you know. I just saw kind of out of the corner of my eye across, here was that guy. And he was going past the store and he was pretty sure on the side of the store where my car was. I thought, hmm, I know this guy. I know about this guy. I did not want to have a confrontation with this guy in the parking lot. So you know what I did? I called my dad. <laughs> called my dad, my five foot eight dad. <laughs> and he showed up. And he confronted this guy. And this guy, at first, was not going to back, you know, back down because my dad's five foot eight. But my dad was taking care of his son. And I remember walking out, kind of standing by my dad, which I was already two inches taller than him. And he was kind of saying to this guy that whatever his plan was, that was not going to happen. And he better just move along. That was about as strong as it got. And this guy did. Now, thankfully, my six foot two, 225 pound brother took care of the situation later. <laughs> Found out later. Uh, but my dad, five foot eight, stood, you know, Sometimes parents just stand and they protect and they, they solve the problem and they step in in miraculous ways and resolve things and your life kind of moves on. But sometimes their role isn't about saving anything. Sometimes their role is about teaching and training and encouraging and helping and you know, helping their kids become the best that they can become. I remember I was in Cub Scouts, and uh, we were going through a Native American section of a Cub Scout book, handbook, whatever it is. And I remember we were, we were at these people's house, and they said, well, we've got a special surprise today. As we we're studying about Native Americans, one of the things that they do traditionally in the Native Americans is, is they dance, and there's lots of ceremonies that in terms of their dancing. And we have a special guest coming to teach us how to do a Native American dance. Like, wow, that's cool. 
So I remember sitting there thinking, well, you know, how hard is that going to be? It's going to be pretty complicated. You know, okay. And so uh, we get done with our little project. I think we you know, made some costumes out of something. And so we're all ready to learn how to do Native American dancing. And uh, all of a sudden, the woman who owned the house that we were at having this meeting, she said, I'd like to introduce our special guest, Marcy Lindsay. That's my mom. My Marcy Kelly mom, total Irish. No, no connection to this continent at all. And people are looking, my, my other Cub Scout guys are like, looking at me, your mom? I'm like, oh yeah. We're going to learn some Native American dancing, apparently. <laughs> And, and sure enough, we got up, we did something. I don't know what exactly what it was. I, she told me many years later, she totally made the whole thing up. <laughs> this lady called her up and says, I need a volunteer. And my mom says, well, what do you need? She goes, I need somebody to come and teach these kids. Okay. <laughs> That's kind of what moms do, right? You know? And she taught us a new American dance. I remember thinking, <laughs> got in the car driving home and I kept looking. How, how do you know how to do this? He goes, ah, I learned it a long time ago. <laughs> Sixth grade basketball. Sixth grade basketball. Learning all the fundamentals of basketball, learning all the skills. Well, back in the day, that's how it was. Now sixth graders are like ready for the NBA. <laughs> but back in the day, sixth grade, we were just still kind of learning stuff, you know, passing and dribbling and things like that. And so... We went out for the team. I was more of a baseball player at that time, but I thought, you know, broaden my horizons. I th actually, I think my parents were making me do it. And uh, so we showed up to the first day of practice, and there was a gym full of sixth-grade boys. And uh, so they're all there, and they'd all decided what the teams were going to be, and so they were dividing up all the teams. And, and then there was a head coach, and there was assistant coaches, and the head coach kind of was standing in different places in the gym, and so we went over. We were the whatever gold team or whatever. So we go over and stand there, and coach introduces himself, and now I'd like to introduce our assistant coach, Gordon Lindsay. Five foot eight. Okay, you don't want to imagine my dad in little shorts and shoes, you don't want to imagine that. It's just, it's bizarre. He, now, imagine plaid shorts with the high black dress socks with sandals. Yeah, that you can imagine because you could see, you could have saw that many times. But actually, my dad coaching basketball? No. But he did. He figured out how to, is that my dad? He, uh, he figured out a few things about basketball. He figured out all I have to do is be just a little ahead of these sixth graders and I'll be fine. Now, you could never do this now, but you could then. And I remember watching my dad, you know, when I wasn't in and he was running some drills and things. Like, hmm, that's my dad. He told me much later, he says, one of the scariest things he ever did. <laughs> but he did. You know, I've thought so many times about my parents and the roles that they've had in my life. And I think, you know what? They're just glimpses, glimpses of my heavenly father. Yeah, there are times when my heavenly father comes in in miraculous ways and saves the situation. You've heard some of my stories. Oh, there's more. 
So many times when God has had to intervene. Some, some that I'm conscious of and some that I know that there has been some things that happened behind the scenes that I didn't know about that maybe one day in heaven I'll know about that God intervened on my behalf. Sometimes God does intervene in very miraculous ways, tangible, oh my goodness, short of God doing something, I'm in trouble. But most of what God is doing is at work, bringing us on to completion. Remember I shared with that their first meeting. That God is at work molding and fashioning and encouraging us to become and experience all that he wants for us, desires for us, finishing the work he began in our, our creation and our birth trying to get our attention, trying to direct us, help us to see where he's leading. Most of the time, that's what that God is at work doing. And sometimes he puts people in our lives for us to experience that. And sometimes we have to learn it the hard way. And sometimes we have those moments of inspiration where we go, got it. But God is at work. I, I really don't believe that you guys showed up here by your own decision. I think God is at work. He draws us to himself. Some of you probably can even go, well, you might be right about that, Jeff, because I remember the conversation that we had about, well, are we going to go this year? Or are we going to go for the first time? Are we going to finally get Pete to stop nagging us and go? And you think, well, the weekend won out. We, We showed up. Or was that God at work? Nudging you, encouraging you by the power of his spirit. Drawing you to experience that would help you grow in the next place that God wants you to be. And God doesn't just do it on weekends like this. God wants to do it all the time. You know, I, I told you a little bit about my, my friend, the hurdler. <laughs> I don't know if he'd call me his friend, but he's my friend. <laughs> You know, in a 110-hurdle race, they have to get over 10 hurdles. 10. That's crazy. One of the other questions I asked this young man, much to his chagrin, was, how's that work? I mean, do you, do you actually see all 10 of those hurdles? Or are you looking at the finish line? You know, are you, are you kind of like, one, two, three, you counting them in your head? Are you, how's that all that work? He goes, you know what? You know, after you've run it a few times, you realize kind of where the 110 ends. But he says, but most of the time you're not worried about that. Most of the time what you're worried about is the hurdle right in front of you. That's all you're focusing on. Because if you don't get over that first one, you know. I watched, uh, I couldn't remember exactly how many hurdles were, were in a 110 race, so I, I, I Googled it. And I actually watched a, a few hurdles races, and there were some amazing ones. There was one of this high school girl, which I'm guessing was her very first time running this race, and there's six girls, six, I think, girls in, in line, and a gun goes off, and they were leaping over the hurdles, which is not really what you do. You kind of glide over the hurdles, right? But they were leaping. So I could tell it was like they were learning. And the sec- she got over the first one, fine. The second one, she ran into it. Down on her knees, elbows. She gets up. And just as she gets up to run to the third one, you can see the coach is right there running with her. And so she gets over the third one, but then hits the fourth one, falls down. Same thing. 
could see the coach. She ran over six of them, but she never stopped. But every time she hit it and did the elbows and knees, I mean, at the end, you could just see it's bad. She would have quit. She would have quit. I got to believe it. Because every time she fell down, you could just see it was a little bit longer. She was down. Now, everyone else has finished the race. Wade finished the race. But here's this coach. Yeah, I can't tell what he's saying. But you can see him. And all of a sudden, her head would pop up, and she'd cut off, and she'd start running again. And then at the end, here's the coach. Gave her a moment. <laughs> and then came over and put his arm around her. And again, I don't know what he said. And then you could see her going like this. And then she did one of these. Okay. Like, all right. Not today, but maybe I'll do this again sometime. <laughs> and I, I kind of go, you know what? One hurdle at a time with the coach running alongside them. And at the very end, there's the coach saying, well done. Good job. The other people, they were already way done, coach. Did you not watch the race? That wasn't that very good. No, no, your race was really good. Good job. Way to go. Good job. And I thought, I think that's how it works in this race called life. Our Heavenly Father who will miraculously come in, but most of the time just runs alongside us, trying to encourage us and support us and help us to keep going, to face the hurdle that's right in front of us. So at the very end, we can hear those words. I can't wait to hear one day. And God said, well done good and faithful hurdler. It's not how it actually says in scripture. Well done, good and faithful servant. But in the race of life, well done, good and faithful. Now you didn't get over all of them. You knocked down a few of them. But here you are. Well done. Well, you know, we have been at this awesome place called Grandview Lodge. And they have served us food. It has been awesome. We've had fun program. The music has been wonderful. The worship's been great. The speaker average. But uh, you know, it's been just a great time. We have met some new people. We've got to share some things that oftentimes we don't around coffee at work. You know, we've had a great time. As a matter of fact, I know of at least one couple saying, you know what? We're empty nesters. We're not going home tonight. We're going to stay another night. I'm thinking, man, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Most of us have to go back. Most of us have to go back. And even if you do stay an extra night, you still have to go back the day after. We can't stay here forever. We have to go home. It reminds me of a story in Matthew. You know the story. It's the transfiguration story. It's got a, it's got a title. It's an event that happened in the life of the disciples. It actually has a title. As a matter of fact, it's one of the really important uh, Events in Jesus' life, baptism, transfiguration, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, fancy words, important, transfiguration. It's an event where Jesus and his closest disciples experience heaven and earth coming together. It's an awesome story. It's, hey, we're going to take a little little trip to the top of the mountain. And they're like, okay, Jesus said so. Here we go. Boom, boom, closest disciples, they get to go up there. And when they get there, it's awesome because all of a sudden the whole area is transformed. And all of a sudden, 
Jesus is now standing with two of the biggest biblical heroes and they're having a conversation. And you go, man, that's awesome. How could it get any better than that? They're standing with those whom they have heard about their whole life and tried to emulate and try to follow and try to do what they've done so that God would be pleased with them. And there's Jesus standing with them going, okay, we can have an idea of kind of where he stands. But that's not where the story ends, does it? You know this story? The story doesn't end there. The story ends when all of a sudden <laughs> there's a cloud that comes. And in that cloud is God's voice who says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They hear directly from God. I love it. What do the disciples say? Let's build some, let's build some houses here. Let's just stay right here. This is awesome. And Jesus is like, as soon as they say that, this is where I think the funny, the story is, gets kind of a little funny. He goes, let's build some houses here. We'll just stay right here. Poof, they're gone. Why'd you say that? We could have stayed a little longer. <laughs> and guess what? They're headed back down. We love to and need to, and it gives us a great encouragement and great joy when we get a chance to go to the mountain, to come to camp, to do a marriage boost retreat, to have fellowship with like-minded people, to hang out with our small group, to be in worship at our church, to open up our Bible and listen to as God speaks to us, to, to pray and to see where God's lead us. We, we need all that, but we don't live there. We don't live there. We live in the valley most of the time. And all those experiences and all those things help us, prepare us, enable us to do that very thing. Here's my encouragement to you guys. Don't just go home. Spend these next whatever minutes we have left here to prepare yourself. If you're here with someone, talk to each other about it. You know, what's, what's one step that we can take to prepare us for that hurdle of going back home? What's one th choice that we can make? What's one idea that we can put into place? What's one prayer that we can pray that's going to prepare us to go back to the valley where we live? If you're here just on your own, well, have that prayer. Have that conversation with God. Jesus knows what your needs are. He knows your heart, he knows the desires and he would welcome that conversation. Don't just go, oh, that's over. Movie over. You know, time to go home. Lights come on. Let's go. Don't do that. Use this as an opportunity to help prepare you to go back to that valley where you live to experience the fullness of what God desires for you there as well. God will meet you there. That's his promise. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the great rescuer, that you come in and swoop in at times. Or sometimes we wonder why you delayed or why we didn't see what you were doing, but your promise is to never leave us or forsake us. So we're going to take you at your word. 
And you promised that you are at work in our lives, molding us and fashioning us according to your purpose. Sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's overwhelming, sometimes it fills us with great joy. It's a mixture of those emotions, but there you are in the midst of them. You have given us this great gift to be away together. Your spirit has been among us. We've sensed his presence. You've declared truth to us from your word that cannot come back void. And so, God, I ask on behalf of those that are gathered that you would bless them with an understanding of what this has meant for them, of how this has been a gift to them to help them to go back to their worlds, that they might bear witness to you, they may be faithful to the tasks you set before them, that you would be honored and praised in all that we might do. Before we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jeff. Let's give it up for Jeff. <laughs> Woo!